Hello, my name is Brian Cam, and you are listening to Clear Story, an audio experiment in which I try out different things relating to the spoken word. I'm still calling it an experiment, and one of my friends, Colin Robertson, asked me what the experiment is. So I thought I would talk a little bit about that at the start of this episode. So I suppose the experiment was to answer a number of questions. The first of which was, am I at all listenable in podcast format? In other words, does anyone want to listen to me? Are they capable of listening to me? And also, does anyone want to hear about the random subjects that I am often reading about, thinking about, writing about, occasionally blogging or tweeting about? And are they just interesting to anyone? And that was literally anyone. So that included my friends, as biased or unbiased as they might be, just to find out if a handful of people wanted to listen to me. That was kind of good enough to justify the attempt, at least. Now that leads to the second part, which is an experiment into how much work it would be to record a podcast like this. And would it be so time-consuming or so difficult, or would I be so bad at the editing that I would be unable or unwilling to continue with it? So that was part of the experiment. I didn't want to commit to anything too publicly before I knew whether First, I was listenable, and second, whether I was capable of recording on a fairly regular basis. And also just whether I would enjoy doing this, and I do enjoy recording this, so that part has been answered. I also called it an experiment in part because I wanted to play with the various formats. So the original idea, which is what I've mostly done, was to record me reading a piece of prose that I'm interested in, as well as a poem that I like, and kind of do some rambling, discursive thought in between the two. But if you listened last time, you might have heard that I read an entire lecture by Thomas Kuhn, which I really enjoyed recording, even though it was quite laborious, I'm not going to lie. So it was also an experiment in terms of format. I would not like to yet rule out any future experiments on that front, So the more familiar guest host kind of interview format could be a possibility. I am at the moment pretty much just practicing speaking, as you can hear. But in the future, it would be amazing to speak to people on this podcast, including possibly you. So that's one idea. The other idea is just about taking questions and potentially accepting topics for future podcasts. There is a facility on anchor.fm forward slash BKAM, which is where this podcast is hosted. That's anchor.fm forward slash BKAM. Bravo Kilo Alpha Mike is the phonetic way of saying those letters, which I do out of habit for some reason. And if you go to that page, you can see that there's a message button that will allow you to record your own voice. And if you have any ideas about future topics that you might like me to cover or requests for readings or poems or anything like that, I would love to have you get in touch. With your permission, I could even add that into the podcast. 
those are just a few ideas, doing the interviews as well as taking questions or taking suggestions maybe is a better way to put it. So with that specification or half specification or me rambling about what my experiment is, I am going to read to you from R.J. Hollingdale's translation of Nietzsche. This is a book called Human All Too Human, and it is subtitled A Book for Free Spirits, and it was written in 1878. Now, you'll probably know who Nietzsche is. I thought I'd talk a little bit about R.J. Hollingdale. I find him kind of an interesting guy. He is a translator of German, but he was basically an amateur. So he was born in 1930. He went to school in London, dropped out of a grammar school in Tuding at the age of 16 to become a journalist. And then he joined the Royal Air Force for a little while. That must have been after the war, unless he was very, very young. He uh, became really interested in German literature. He was essentially self-taught, and then he became a translator of people like Nietzsche, Goethe, Hoffmann, uh, Lichtenberg, and Schopenhauer. I've read his translation of Schopenhauer's Essays and Aphorisms, and I quite like his translation. Not that I'm any kind of expert on German, but I just like him. I like his introduction. I like the way he translates, and I just find him kind of an interesting guy. So he translated quite a bit of Nietzsche. I'm looking at the list, and it's like 10 different things. And he died in 2001. So I just thought I'd give a little background around this translator because I am kind of interested in people who are amateurs and get very good at something. So eventually, despite not possessing any degree, he was a high school dropout, basically. He became a translator of Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, and people who are not known for being the easiest guys to translate, shall we say. So going back to Nietzsche, I have not actually read Human All Too Human, but a friend of mine, Isabella Granick, sent me a passage that she thought would interest me. And it indeed did interest me. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and I am going to tie it to Chinese philosophy, which I have actually discussed a little bit before. So before I do that, I'm going to read to you from Hollingdale's translation of Nietzsche's Human All Too Human. This is from section 5, which is titled Tokens of Higher and Lower Culture, and it's section 224 if you have your own copy of Nietzsche. Each section is titled in this book, or at least this edition of this book, and it is called Ennoblement Through Degeneration. And here's Nietzsche. History teaches that the branch of a nation that preserves itself best is the one in which most men have, as a consequence of sharing habitual and undiscussable principles, that is to say, as a consequence of their common belief, a living sense of community. Here, good sound custom grows strong. Here, the subordination of the individual is learned and firmness imparted to character as a gift at birth and subsequently augmented. The danger facing these strong communities, founded on similarly constituted, firm-charactered individuals, is that of the gradually increasing inherited stupidity, such as haunts all stability like its shadow. It is the more unfettered, uncertain, and morally weaker individuals upon whom spiritual progress depends in such communities. 
It is the men who attempt new things, and in general many things. Countless numbers of this kind perish on account of their weakness without producing any very visible effect. But in general, and especially when they leave posterity, they affect a loosening up from time to time, and from time to time inflict an injury on the stable element of a community. It is precisely at this injured and weakened spot that the whole body is, as it were, inoculated with something new. Its strength must, however, be as a whole sufficient to receive this new thing into its blood and to assimilate it. Degenerate natures are of the highest significance wherever progress is to be effected. Every progress of the whole has to be preceded by a partial weakening. The strongest natures preserve the type. The weaker help it to evolve. Something similar occurs in the case of the individual human being. Rarely is a degeneration, a mutilation, even a vice and physical or moral damage in general without an advantage in some other direction. The more sickly man, for example, will, if he belongs to a warlike and restless race, perhaps have more inducement to stay by himself and thereby acquire more repose and wisdom. The one-eyed will have one stronger eye, the blind will see more deeply within themselves, and in any event possess sharper hearing. To this extent, the celebrated struggle for existence does not seem to me to be the only theory by which progress or strengthening of a man or a race can be explained. Two things, rather, must come together. Firstly, the augmentation of the stabilizing force through the union of minds in belief and communal feeling, then the possibility of the attainment of higher goals through the occurrence of degenerate natures, and, as a consequence of them, partial weakenings and injurings of the stabilizing force. It is precisely the weaker nature, as the tenderer and more refined, that makes any progress possible at all. A people that becomes somewhere weak and fragile, but is, as a whole, still strong and healthy, is capable of absorbing the infection of the new and incorporating it to its own advantage. In the case of the individual human being, the task of education is to imbue him with such firmness and certainty he can no longer as a whole be in any way deflected from his path. Then, however, the educator has to inflict injuries upon him, or employ the injuries inflicted on him by fate, and when he has thus come to experience pain and distress, something new and noble can be inoculated into the injured places. It will be taken up into the totality of his nature, and later the traces of its nobility will be perceptible in the fruits of his nature. So as far as the state is concerned, Machiavelli says that the form of government signifies very little, even though semi-educated people think otherwise. The great goal of statecraft should be duration, which outweighs everything else, inasmuch as it is more valuable than freedom. Only when there is securely founded and guaranteed long duration is a steady evolution and ennobling inoculation at all possible. Though the dangerous companion of all duration, established authority, will, to be sure, usually resist it. So, I find this piece, even though it's quite short, incredibly insightful, and I'm going to discuss it at some length. So, where does he start? He starts with history, and he basically says that the branch of a nation that preserves itself best is the one in which most men have 
as a consequence of sharing habitual and undiscussable principles, that is to say, as a consequence of their common belief, a living sense of community. Now, I find this really interesting. One is that he says that the principles are undiscussable. They're habitual. The sense is that they are unconscious. They are basically assumptions that are baked into the fabric of society. So if you're doing a monarchy, you're not debating whether there should be a monarchy or whether you should be doing a democracy or whatever. Maybe you have some debates like that on the edges, but the strong societies, as he calls them, are ones where there is some kind of consensus around what we're doing and why and who we are. And that consensus is not one that's discussed. It's actually undiscussable. So it's a kind of baked in obviousness to use Althusser's term that you might remember from a few episodes ago, that ideologies impose obviousnesses. I think Nietzsche is talking about exactly the same thing, which is that if you're, say, running a company rather than running a nation, in that company, you have some idea of what it is that that company does. Now, maybe occasionally you think, is this the best thing to do? And you try to pivot or whatever it is. But in general, if you're selling shoes, you just keep selling shoes. And there's no kind of constant discussion around this. There's just, you know, if, if you're a successful shoe seller, and that is pretty much what he's specifying as a precondition. He's talking about the nations that persist. So you could think of any social formation, but if it's a social formation that you can talk about as something that still exists, that's because there's a kind of consensus that that organization is doing that thing. It's roughly defined. It doesn't need to be exhaustively defined, but it's there's enough consensus that it can organize action or it can organize identity or something like that. And I like that he also roots this in a common belief because it makes it clear that it's about consensus. So then he says, here sound custom grows strong and here the subordination of the individual is learned. <laughs> so now this is the interesting part because he's saying that in order to be strong, you need conformity basically. And so you need to have people who are towing the line, who are maintaining the status quo. If you don't do that, then you're probably in a state of civil war or your company is going out of business. Or, you know, if you're constantly fighting over the fundamental basis of whatever your social organization is, that's not a good thing. It's not just that it's not a good thing. It's that that thing will be kind of selected against. So if you're constantly fighting, you may be outcompeted. Now he's going to discuss uh, a little bit about competition later. But let's just say that what's interesting is that the firmness imparted to character as a gift at birth and subsequently augmented is really fascinating because Althusser, uh, that you might remember, he discusses this issue that even before a child is born, it is interpolated. And that means that it's given an identity. You're already preparing to have that child have rules of society, of the society that it's going to live in. And those rules are being taught right from birth, pretty much. Just the attunement of all those bodily signals. The child is a sponge soaking up everything. And one of those things is rules. And there are more and more and more rules as we go through the last thousand years. That is an argument from Norbert Elias and um, one that's really important. Now, 
What's fascinating about this is that the strength, the firmness, the gift at birth is from the subordination of the individual. So in other words, the subjects that are the most kind of brainwashed are the strongest. The danger that faces a community like this, he says, is that of the gradually increasing inherited stupidity such as haunts all stability like its shadow. I just think this is brilliant. I'm going to read that one more time. The danger facing these strong communities founded on similarly constituted firm-charactered individuals is that of the gradually increasing inherited stupidity such as haunts all stability like its shadow. And I just think this is brilliant. So he's saying that the very strength that produces stability and durability and directionality is a kind of stupidity. It's a kind of stubbornness. And you might think of anyone in a position of power. You might think of just a monopoly, which kind of exists in some area of the market and they have such dominance that they don't really need to do very much in terms of strategy. They can kind of just carry on doing what they were doing. They stick with the status quo. And that can be great for a while, but eventually it will become increasingly stupid because that's just kind of the nature of these group dynamics, which is, you know, the bigger something gets, the more inertia it gains and the less it needs to respond to any external or internal demands, the less it will do that. And so the stupider it will become. You might also think of nation states. I'm sure you can think of some who got into a position of dominance, which didn't end all that well for that nation or for the people that they govern. I'm reading a book right now by Adam Hochschild. It is called King Leopold's Ghost. And uh, it's an excellent book, by the way, highly recommended. And it's about King Leopold's attempt to get a colony for Belgium in the Congo. And... You can see that as they get more and more power, some pretty awful things start happening. And I think that the kinds of stupidity, I'm not going to just, you know, chalk up all of colonialism to, to this exact dynamic that Nietzsche is pointing to, but you can see times when unchallenged incumbents can do things that are very, very stupid. Not only stupid from the point of view of the people they're governing or the people that are enacting or even the people that are perpetrating whatever's going on, but stupid even for their own longevity and for their own well-being. This idea that stability leads to stupidity is a really interesting one. Now, who needs to come in and challenge this? It's actually the weak individuals who try new things and many things. Now, I just love that he calls them degenerates. Um, it makes you just think of these like outcasts, weirdos, the kinds of kids that are kind of causing trouble in school, just the kind of weirdos. Now, if you know anything about Nietzsche's uh, <laughs> own biography, you may know that he was pretty much a weirdo. So, you know, he's always off on his little mountains, climbing up and down the Alps or walking in the south of France. I always have a hard time uh, picturing him in the south of France, but apparently he was there writing his weird philosophy that no one really cares about. He's pretty much unknown in his life. And he is just a kind of outsider, right? He's what he would call a degenerate. This is really interesting because you might think that it's through strong leadership that a society progresses. For example, you might think that a small few kind of take the reins and they lead people into, you know, some bright new future. 
Nietzsche is saying, no, it is the people who refuse to conform or fail to conform either because they're weak or there's something wrong with them or they're degenerates or, you know, basically they are not normal people and they are not strong people is what he says. And I like this because I've thought about, I will link to this in the show notes, but I am interested in this issue of the avant-garde in art because you could also see in art that maybe you've got this kind of fairly mainstream form of art, let's say film, and you've got people making those films and they largely conform to genres. Maybe they play with them a little bit, but they are largely exploiting a successful strategy rather than coming up with a brand new one. At the same time, you might have indie filmmakers who are making weirder films. You might see them as the avant-garde. And avant-garde, of course, means advanced guard. And it's a very military term, right? It's basically those guys that are right at the front of the whatever battalion. I don't really know any military terms, but they are leading the charge, let's say. And that's kind of like the sense that at least I get from the words avant-garde. But you could also think of the kind of like weirdos at the back that are just like, "Mm, not so sure about this. And in a certain sense, that makes sense even in the military context, which is that, as you'll know, if you've read War and Peace, the guys that tend to carry the flags or lead the charge are often the first ones to get shot. So you might think of Prince Andre in his glorious uh, charge forward at the I think it's the Battle of Borodino. I don't know why I'm always quoting this book that I haven't read for decades. But anyway, the point is that it may not be the strong leaders that are leading things. And you might think of some weirdos that you... (laughs) You might think of people who end up in positions of power and think, yeah, I mean, weirdos, not necessarily a bad description for that person. Weak is another question, but I, I really like his idea that they are degenerates. Now, he thinks... And I I also just find this funny because, yeah, people like him or like Schopenhauer are kind of weirdos, right? And maybe I'll link it back to R.J. Hollingdale, who's a translator of Nietzsche, in order to get that motivated and interested to read this notoriously difficult man, even though I find both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche to be hilarious and not actually as difficult as their reputation might suggest. But just to undertake that project of I'm going to drop out of high school when I'm 16, I'm going to join the Air Force, leave the Air Force, teach myself German, then read these obscure 19th century guys that no one really in mainstream philosophy cares about all that much, and I'm going to become their translator. To me, that's like, it's funny because Hollingdale is kind of an example of this kind of weirdo, and so is Nietzsche, really, and so is Schopenhauer. If you know anything about Schopenhauer, he was also a very weird guy. Although I will again say that he is hilarious, so please read Schopenhauer if you want to be amused and provoked, maybe. He's quite provocative as well. So is Nietzsche. Now, I really like this idea that in order for a change to take place, there's also got to be this kind of loosening up before it happens. You might think of periods in history where there's more social permissiveness and more ideas are allowed and maybe a bunch of weird ideas come up and some of them are bad but eventually you stop hearing about those bad ideas and maybe some of the ideas that get selected are good ideas and they um you know you have this period of what he calls loosening up and then there's a kind of progress he calls it a spiritual progress and it depends in such communities on the uncertain and morally weaker individuals (laughs) 
<laughs> and I just love this idea that it's like, you know, it's actually the weirdos. It's actually the degenerates. Degenerates, what a great word. That are the ones who allow progress to happen. These are not the avant-garde. These are the people lagging behind and saying, no, we're not going to charge into your battle. And then maybe, you know, everyone kind of charges in their stupid direction. And halfway through, they realize, hmm, that wasn't such a great idea. Maybe we should go back and rethink this. And it's actually those kind of people that refuse to conform or didn't conform in some way that allow this kind of progress. So I kind of like that idea. Now, he goes on to say, he talks a little bit about how blind people's, if you have one blind eye, your sight gets better. I'm not sure if that's actually true. I mean, he also says, yeah, if you definitely, if you're blind, then your hearing gets better. I, I have no idea whether any of that's true. Maybe you can tell me if any of that's true. But you get the kind of idea that he's saying that even in an individual's life, having a downside can sometimes be an upside. I think I would accept it at that level. I wouldn't say go as far as he says and say that the sickly man is always superior or something. He was a pretty sickly man, so he may just be saying that, you know, sickly men are great. And <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll, let, let's give it to him. Let's just say, yeah, sickly men are great. So he then goes on to say that struggle is not the only thing. He says, to this extent, the celebrated struggle for existence does not seem to me to be the only theory by which progress or strengthening of a man or a race can be explained. Now, he must be referring to Darwin. And Darwin is, in The Origin of Species, writing about this theory of survival of the fittest. Now, that is a problematic term because that kind of comes a little bit later from this guy Spencer. And you're already in hot water by the time you get to Spencer because he's very much like, this is social Darwinism, that where you kind of make what I think of as a teleological mistake, which is saying, well, if we assume the survival of the fittest and we see that this thing has survived, therefore it's the fittest and therefore it's the best. And therefore we can kind of project backwards and say, this is the thing that should exist on some level. And I think that's a very dangerous trap. And Darwin, at least in the second edition of Origin of Species, does not fall into it. He is quite careful not to. But apparently, I have not read the later editions, apparently as he goes on towards the sort of fifth and I think there's a sixth edition, he goes more in this social Darwinist direction. He puts more emphasis on the survival of the fittest, which I think he does not use that term. I think that's Herbert Spencer's term. So Nietzsche is kind of saying that he doesn't think that competition is the only thing that leads to societal progress, whatever you mean by progress. And I'm not going to go into that because much like survival of the fittest, progress is this kind of thing that when you start thinking in that way, it kind of tends to lead you astray, in my view. But I think I agree with Nietzsche that competition is not the only thing. And so the two things that he focuses on are the augmentation of the stabilizing force through the union of minds in belief and communal feeling. And then the second one is the possibility of the attainment of higher goals through the occurrence of degenerate natures, and as a consequence of them, partial weakenings and injurings of the stabilizing force. Okay, so I absolutely love this. He's done this in like three sentences. And what he said is, 
you know the theory. We all know the theory. It's Darwin's theory. And, or I'm saying that so confidently, I would love to hear if he is not talking about Darwin's theory, because I am just reading him and saying, yes, this is definitely, what he, what he means is definitely Darwin, or definitely, you know, Spencer or something like that. I have no idea what he really means, but I'm going with the idea that struggle is not the only thing. So he's talking about struggle, he's talking about Darwinian competition. The two things that he sees as also producing progress are the augmentation of the stabilizing force. In other words, cooperation. So basically, within society, you have to form these consensus. Is that a word? Consensuses. Consensus. I don't know. Now it sounds weird. But you have to have a consensus about what direction you're going in. And that depends on cooperation. It is not just a bunch of people fighting it out. If people are constantly fighting it out, you will not make progress, right? That's, that's kind of like the definition of like a, a civil war, internecine strife. You might have a company splitting up or whatever it is, you know, basically all is not well if you're constantly debating about fundamentals. Now, we're going to come back to that debate about fundamentals. Uh, think about that as a thing that you want to avoid at least doing constantly. Most of the time you want to have a consensus that you want to have some agreement about where you're going, what you're doing. So the first element is cooperation or augmentation of the stabilizing force, as he calls it. So it's not just constant fighting. Now, the second one is the attainment of higher goals through the occurrence of degenerate natures, and as a consequence of them, partial weakenings of the stabilizing force. And so he's got kind of like an ordering force and a kind of chaos force. You might think of exploiting a strategy and exploring for new strategies. What he's saying is that most of the work does not happen through strength alone. Strength means you kind of keep doing the same thing and it always risks becoming stupid because it just goes on for too long. Now, at the same time, competition is not the driver of everything. He's kind of implying that although struggle is a thing, that actually it's more like consensus that is occasionally disrupted. Now, does this sound at all familiar? For me, this is exactly what Thomas Kuhn is describing in The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. So you may have heard last time that I did a lecture of Kuhn's, and you may know that I am a big fan of Kuhn's. I think he's a great writer and a great thinker. Now, he says that the very reason that scientific progress is so rapid is because it switches between these two modes of normal science where you form a consensus and you say, here's the science, here's the textbook, and everyone gets the textbook, and they all apply that textbook in a kind of unidirectional way. The problems that they solve are well-defined, Maybe you're trying to find the mass of some element or you're trying to find the wavelength of something. While you're trying to find the wavelength of something, you don't really get to do this thing of, well, what is wavelength anyway? And how do we measure it? And why do we measure it? What Kuhn says is that the reason that you make so much progress in accuracy and precision and the number of problems you can solve is precisely because you generate this strong consensus around a paradigm and that paradigm excludes people who don't agree with it. It sends them back to philosophy departments and allows a unidirectional progress. 
because it's solving well-defined problems and it's choosing those problems based on whether they seem soluble, not whether they seem important or something else. So he thinks that's the definition of a science. It's with some caveats, you could almost define a mature science as that which progresses rapidly. And then the other mode for Kuhn is what he calls crisis science. And during a crisis, everything's up for grabs. They start going back, they backtrack, they try to figure out how did we get to this point? What are our baseline assumptions? Sometimes they come up with completely different theories that radically change everything. The very contentious one that he argues is that Einstein's theory is not compatible with Newton's because Einstein redefines all of Newton's terms to mean something that Newton could never have meant by them. That will fly in the face of what you may have learned about Einstein's relationship to Newton. And if you are interested in this topic, I highly recommend that you read The Structure of Scientific Revolutions and that section in particular because it is not easily conveyed. An easier example might be just to say the Copernican Revolution. So you would say, the heliocentric worldview is basically incompatible with the geocentric worldview. Sorry, I should say view of the galaxy or something like that. And so when you're coming up with the heliocentric view, you need to reject the geocentric view. And in order to do that, you need to do a whole lot of work and a lot of searching and a lot of problem solving in a much more chaotic way than you would do just by trying to apply Ptolemy's model to what you see in the sky. Kuhn is suggesting that the kind of strong center of science, and of course, before Copernicus, this doesn't exist to the same degree. You kind of have different competing schools of mechanics, let's say Aristotelian and Epicurean, and maybe even some kind of Neoplatonist ones, and maybe they're all arguing with each other. I'm kind of making that up, but the point that Kuhn is making is that before a consensus forms, before a paradigm forms, there's a period of essentially chaos. It's kind of like there's these stable equilibria. There's maybe four or five different schools kind of balanced with each other. And they produce like little local insights into experiments that they're carrying out. But in general, they don't really progress. I think he says something like they amount to something less than science or something brilliant like that. I think he's talking about Francis Bacon's method of just collecting every random fact that you find and assuming that they're all going to be somehow relevant. Okay, I have talked for a long time about Kuhn. How does that relate to Nietzsche? Well, what Nietzsche is saying is that you have augmentation through cooperation of the stabilizing force, and then you have a weakening of that force, which allows the attainment of higher goals. And I just think that is a really <laughs> concise way of putting it. It's so close to the Kuhnian thing that it makes me wonder if Kuhn read this passage. I don't know of any reference that he makes to Nietzsche, but I find it really indicative. Now, Nietzsche says, for any progress at all to be made, it's going to be the weaker natures that injure the stabilizing force. I love how he also says that this is part of education. Now, I, I, I'm at risk of going in a million different directions at once, but I'm going to try and stay focused. First on science. So, Michael Polanyi, who is writing in the decade before Thomas Kuhn wrote the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, wrote a paper called The Republic of Science. And in it, he argues that the killer feature in science is that it allows people to be trained up very rapidly to the cutting edge of the discipline, but at the same time, 
holds a space for dissent. Now, you may be thinking, didn't Kuhn just say these people get relegated to philosophy departments or something like that, and so they're excluded from science? And that is true. That's exactly what Kuhn argues. But critically, Polanyi is not comparing science to music. You might have very, very different views about what good music is. And those two views can just happily coexist for a very long time. It doesn't seem like pop music is going to cause the extinction or the total annihilation of classical music. It just seems like those are both probably going to just carry on as they were doing their own little thing. There's not going to be a dominant consensus that forms on one pole or the other that leads to the destruction of the other genre. But in the sciences, this does happen. Now, Kuhn kind of makes that comparison of, of the sciences to the arts and tries to reason why the sciences seem to progress in this way. The arts do sometimes too. He thinks that in Renaissance painting, that actually is a science because they get so good at this kind of realistic, figurative painting that just looks super, super lifelike, right? Now, Polanyi is not comparing science to the arts. Polanyi is comparing science to the church. And that is a very different comparison because if you think about how Christianity treated heretics for most of its existence, it was not a good idea for your own longevity to be a heretic against the Catholic Church. It may have started with a group of weirdos. All progress, as Nietzsche says, starts with some kind of strange outsiders. And when you, if you think of the Gospels and you think of the disciples, they are kind of ragtag bunch of dropouts, aren't they? They're not Roman centurions exactly, are they? They are outsiders. They're kind of weirdos, aren't they? So they lead to progress. But then that progress leads to stability. And that stability is the rock of the church, St. Peter. And you've got the church doing their church things. And whenever dissent comes up, once they get past the kind of early stage where they're still being persecuted by the Romans, eventually you get to the part where they're really consolidating power. And I don't think it would be too much of a simplification to say that they did not brook much dissent, let's say. They often purged or persecuted or burned people at the stake. They were still kind of doing this well into the Middle Ages, definitely. The wars of religion get even worse. Of course, that's not quite the same single solitary power that's doing the purging. Um, but let's say, you know, there's a good thousand plus years. You could think of the New World and the kind of forced assimilation that's going on there as being what Nietzsche would call the stupidity of stability. Anyway, okay, I've gone a little bit dark there. So for Polanyi, the difference between that model of the church and science, and this may sound very strange if you've never thought about this question before, but maybe the easiest way to frame it is just that whether you're talking about the church or you're talking about science, whatever science entails, you are talking about people involved in a joint endeavor. And they have enough consensus about what they're doing that they can make some kind of progress. They may have lots of arguments and disagreements about things, but they have enough agreement to recognize each other. Within those organizations, they have a kind of standard of what it means to be, let's say, a Jesuit in whatever century. And if you violate those norms or don't adhere to them or you start saying stuff that's a little too crazy, then you're no longer a Jesuit. You're excommunicated. 
Now, science is also, as Polanyi argues, a form of consensus making, and it is a social endeavor. It is not something that exists outside the context of society. Now, you may be familiar with Thomas Nagel's idea of the view from nowhere, or you might be familiar with James B. Conant. I don't know why you would be, but he was a teacher of Thomas Kuhn's. Uh, he was also, a, I think, a president of Harvard and worked on chemical weapons. And Conant really thought that science is basically without history. You don't really need any context to understand science. Now, it's my point of view that you actually kind of do need history to understand science. It doesn't mean that science doesn't make progress. That's a different question. It's that what emerges from science, in my view, is path-dependent. That's a much bigger argument. I'm probably not going to dwell on that one for this time. But if you're interested, maybe I can talk more about that later. So, you've got the church. It suppresses dissent in a very brutal way. It kills people, basically. Science does not kill people. So, although, as Kuhn points out, it does excommunicate people to, let's say, the philosophy departments from which the sciences often originally sprang, but it does not kill them. And so that's actually kind of adaptive. And so Polanyi thinks that scientific consensus emerges and science has a way of incorporating dissent into itself. And so for Polanyi, science is this thing which produces a strong consensus and a directionality, and it trains people up to the cutting edge. Then, when it produces dissent, there are specific situations where it can actually incorporate that dissent and change the direction that it's going. This is also what Kuhn is talking about when he talks about crisis science. Now, to come back to Nietzsche, a people that becomes somewhere weak and fragile, but is, as a whole, still strong and healthy, is capable of absorbing the infection of the new, and incorporating it to its own advantage. That sounds an awful lot like what Kuhn is talking about with crisis science. A strong consensus develops around a scientific paradigm. It progresses unidirectionally because of this consensus. But at a certain point, it stops making progress. The challenge of stability is stupidity, is what Nietzsche says. And for Kuhn, no strategy works forever. And Kuhn thinks that ideas and scientific paradigms are something like biological evolution. You could also say that in biological evolution, things don't work forever. They are context-dependent. That's one reason, to go back to Spencer for a second, that this is such a dangerous way of thinking, this survival of the fittest. Because fittest for what? If the environment is dynamic and constantly changing, which I think most people today would agree that it is, then fittest is entirely context-dependent. It's a matter of perspective. I would argue, Kuhn would argue, that this is exactly the same for scientific paradigms, that to solve a certain kind of problem and make a certain kind of progress up to a certain point, you use the Newtonian worldview, and you've got corpuscles, and you've got time kind of fixed throughout the universe. You've got this grid-like clockwork reductionist kind of apparatus and that's good as far as it goes <laughs> but at a certain point if you go far enough in any given direction 
that map of the territory is going to start to look a little like uh, there's some terra incognito out there. We don't really know how this maps on and we haven't really seen if this applies. And at that point, you kind of need to switch strategies. This is at odds with other views of science, which kind of say that there is some kind of ground truth out there that we can apprehend it more or less directly and that the scientific method is this quite special thing that allows us to gradually unveil whatever that reality is. Kuhn is saying that's not really how it works. We have a way of probing deeper and deeper by intensive activity, and that activity always for Kuhn has to be directed at nature. It can't be a thought experiment. But eventually any given strategy, because they are kind of almost Darwinian, they are almost like autopoetic processes, these paradigms, because they involve people, but they're kind of independent of the people. You might think of a life form that uses all these elements, right, in some kind of configuration. But then you get into the ship of Theseus thing. What if that organism, through eating stuff and metabolizing stuff, replaces every part of its structure with a new element? Is it still the same organism or not? Well, without getting into that whole ship of Theseus thing, I think we can safely say that you are the same person, even if you've got new proteins or your hair has grown or whatever, that you are independent of, let's say, the carbon that mostly makes up your body or the water that's in it. You know, that can all be kind of replaced and we still say you're you. So why am I talking about that? Because in a certain sense, that's also true at a societal level. Whether it's a corporation, you know, the fact that JP Morgan still exists, even though all of its founding members are dead, shows that that is a process of doing something. And of course, it may do different things over different times. I'm not saying that it has to do the same thing exactly. But it's a process that continues to work, even though it's replaced all of its elements. That is also true of a city. That is also true of a nation state, which is that they are kind of these independent processes. They exist at a slightly higher level than any of the individuals who make them up. Now for Kuhn, that's kind of what scientific consensus is. And in general, that's what Althusser would call a social formation. That could be a trade union, or it could be a church congregation, or it could be a family or something like that. It's a social arrangement of relationships that perpetuate themselves through time. And some may be temporary. You might say that a nuclear family does not in any super clear sense replicate itself over time. You might say that there's dynasties that do that. But I mean, is your grandparents' nuclear family the same one as yours? Well, you know, they're kind of related, but you know, there, there's enough variance that maybe they're not the same thing. But if you say the congregation at St. Paul's Cathedral or something, obviously that's changed for all kinds of dynamic reasons, and yet you can still refer to it. Scientific consensus is something like that for Kuhn. And the dynamics of it are very, very similar to what Nietzsche is describing. And to show you how I think those dynamics are similar, I'm actually going to read you a section of Kuhn. So Kuhn writes in The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Anomaly appears only against the background provided by the paradigm. The more precise and far-reaching that paradigm is, the more sensitive an indicator it provides of anomaly, and hence of an occasion for paradigm change. In the normal mode of discovery, even resistance to change has a use 
that will be explored more fully in the next section. By ensuring that the paradigm will not be too easily surrendered, resistance guarantees that scientists will not be lightly distracted and that the anomalies that lead to paradigm change will penetrate existing knowledge to the core. The very fact that a significant scientific novelty so often emerges simultaneously from several laboratories is an index both to the strongly traditional nature of normal science and to the completeness with which that traditional pursuit prepares the way for its own change. So what Kuhn is saying is that it's the very consensus, it's the very breadth and depth of that consensus that allows an anomaly to be seen. So it's the very scope of the consensus. It's that it's so far reaching and you're so certain of it that allows you to see when something has gone wrong. Not only that, but when something does go wrong, it is that very consensus and the resistance to that change that allows the change to penetrate science to its core. So back to Nietzsche, he's saying that a community that is strong and healthy is capable of absorbing the infection and incorporating it. And he says that the duration is quite important. So if you think of a community as an autopoietic process, I'm not actually sure how you say that word, autopoiesis, something like that, that when a society is securely founded and has a long duration, then it can evolve. And it can evolve through these weakenings. And when those weakenings happen, they get absorbed into the whole thing. In the life of an individual, he says, that the task of education is to imbue a person with such firmness and certainty, he can no longer as a whole be in any way deflected from his path. But then the educator has to inflict injuries upon him or employ the injuries inflicted on him by fate. And when he has thus come to experience pain and distress, something new and noble can be inoculated into the injured places. I just love that. So in other words, education itself, the changing of a worldview, requires a kind of disruption. He calls it an injury. Kuhn would call it a scientific crisis. I think they're talking about the same thing. And I think that as in individuals, so in society. That's how education works. And you might think of things like plasticity. Um, I have this vague recollection that serotonin can be released under high conditions of stress or uncertainty or even punishment. And in that sense, it may be the case that that is a mechanism for learning. And what is learning if not changing the configuration of your expectations about the world? And that goes back to predictions that the brain is making, and it goes to what science predicts and how things should work within the scientific domain. Okay, I have talked a lot about the philosophy of science today. Now, finally, at long last, I nearly forgot myself because I've been going on for so long, but I actually wanted to tie this to Chinese philosophy. And I am going to refer to A.C. Graham, whom I have referred to before as the translator of Duanza, one of my favorite philosophers, if he can actually be called a philosopher. He is an odd one, definitely a weirdo in Nietzsche's sense. And I wanted to read you this list that that same translator, A.C. Graham, 
who translates ancient Chinese thinkers into English, or at least he did so when he was writing this book, which came out in 1989. The book is called Disputers of the Tao. It looks at the major strands of Chinese thinking that emerge in what's called the Warring States period or the Hundred Schools of Thought period. This is a period, and it goes from the 6th century BC to 221 BC. So Graham is covering the major schools that come out of that, schools like Confucianism and Legalism and Taoism and Moism. Those are kind of the main four, as far as I know. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Because uh, you could also say that out of the Greek schools, the major ones that we kind of think about today might be something like the Platonists, the Aristotelians, the Epicureans, the Stoics. I guess maybe you've also got Pythagoreans. I'm not really sure how long they lasted. But it's an interesting thought, right? Especially because for Kuhn, those schools have different views of mechanics and optics and other things that eventually become part of science. So, A.C. Graham is remarking on what's called syncretism, which is basically taking these four very different schools of thought within China and combining them, even though they are pretty much not compatible with each other. And so he says it's remarkable that for 2,000 years or more, a quarter of the human population existed with these schools in a kind of balance or tension. He lists five elements. The fifth one is yin and yang. That one kind of exists across some of these other forms of thought. But he thinks that this syncretic view, which was first tried in this document called the Lu Spring and Autumn in 240 BC, is kind of adaptive in the sense that it provides different philosophical tools for different domains of life. So he says, from Confucianism, China gets an ethic rooted below the level of critical reflection in the most enduring social bonds, kinship and custom, which models the community on the family, relates ruler or subject to father or son, and past or present to ancestor or descendant. Now, from this other school called the legalist school, legalism, a rational statecraft with the techniques to organize an empire of unprecedented size and largely homogenized custom throughout it. From yin and yang, a proto-science which places man in a cosmos modeled on community. From Taoism, reinforced from the later Han by Buddhism, personal philosophies relating individual directly to cosmos, allowing room within the social order for the unassimilable who might disrupt community. And the final one is from Moza. It's called Moism, M-O-H-I-S-M. Through the argumentation of competing schools, a rationality confined to the useful, which leaves fundamental questions outside its range. So what I like about this is that these schools conflict with each other, but they're allowed to stay in this kind of dynamic tension and they also have a scope that's defined to them. From Confucianism, you get this emphasis on the family, what's called filial piety, very famously, kinship bonds, and they are kind of below the level of critical reflection. You're kind of not allowed to really do much reasoning at that level. It's just assumed that that's got to be the way it is. 
And that's got to be adaptive. That's an assumption. That's what Nietzsche called a common belief, which is undiscussable. And so you can see that Graham describes Confucianism as rooted below the level of critical reflection. So it's a kind of unifying force that is unexamined, and it works precisely because it is unexamined. Legalism is a rational statecraft that's used for organizing the empire. Moism is kind of a utilitarian view. They are kind of related to each other, but what's interesting is that rationality is confined to those kind of utilitarian questions. It leaves out metaphysical questions. So you don't end up in this situation where you have someone like Plato making claims about fundamental reality that then gets taken up by theology and creates this kind of dualism. That's not really happening in these schools. You do have yin and yang, and interestingly, yin and yang are ordering and disordering principles, among many other things. That's too simplistic to say that they're just that. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because those two forces what Nietzsche calls the stabilizing force and the force that weakens the stabilizing force kind of line up to yin and yang, don't they? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And uh, finally, the thing that you may have heard in my voice I was excited about is the idea that Taoism and Buddhism allow room within the social order for the unassimilable who might disrupt community, the people who do not or will not assimilate within the community. Those are precisely the people that Nietzsche identifies as degenerates, and it may well be adaptive, just as it is in science, for a society to allow space for dissent. I'm not making claims that this society does and this society doesn't, but I'm just observing the general tendency that rapid progress is made in the sciences over the period that it allows for dissent and it allows that dissent to be incorporated into the science when it passes some kind of critical threshold. Now, you could say that the same thing is going on with the Taoists or the Buddhists to some degree, that they are like a reservoir of degenerates who refuse to conform to the standard rules of society. And for Nietzsche, that is precisely what allows progress. You may be thinking that you don't really associate Confucianism with progress. Well, China was around for a very long time, and I think the statistic is something like the GDP per capita in the West only surpassed China quite recently, like in the past two centuries or something. So they had a good 2,000 years where whatever they were doing, and it may be this balancing in part of all these different systems, was working very well. I think it's also important that Confucianism from 100 BC was the dominant ingredient. So just as Nietzsche says that for a society to be strong, the majority of people need to conform, but there needs also to be space. There needs also to be degenerates that can allow the attainment of higher goals, is I think how he puts it. And so those kind of weirdos hanging around, the Taoists, the crazy scientists, philosopher types, you can see it across a lot of dynamics. They may actually be adaptive and an important source of randomness or disorder or innovative thinking or problem solving that only is useful at certain times. You might say a robust society or given that Nietzsche sees the damaging to cause you to strengthen 
you might even call it an anti-fragile society, is dependent on these weak individuals. And like I said, I think it's important that Confucianism is the dominant one. I can think of a few other places that this applies. There's this idea that some children are resilient dandelions. They can withstand basically anything. They don't really get too traumatized, but they don't thrive quite as well as other children who are in the minority that are called orchids. And orchids are both more susceptible to harm. They need a larger amount of care and looking after and things like that. But when they're in the right environment, like an orchid, they're very context sensitive, but they may thrive. So that's just another place that I can think of with um, where this idea of degenerates has kind of come up. Not that you, if you are an orchid or your child, if your child is an orchid, are degenerates, but you know what I mean. And I will give one final example. I know I've gone on for a very long time. That is in the unlikely domain of slime molds, which are these weird organisms that are usually unicellular, but under enough stress, they sometimes form multicellular structures. There is an article, which I will link to in the show notes, called out-of-sync loners may secretly protect orderly swarms. I think that's the same kind of dynamic. So that is in the show notes. And if that wasn't weird enough, I often close with a poem. If you've listened to the other episodes, then you may know that. And I'm going to read you a Shakespeare sonnet to go with your Nietzsche and Kuhn and (laughs) Darwin and Polanyi and all these other crazy guys. Um, I am going to read Shakespeare's Sonnet 95, and I'm not 100% sure, but it feels kind of related to me in my weird brain to some of the stuff we were talking about. So let's go with Sonnet 95. How sweet and lovely dost thou make the shame, which like a canker in the fragrant rose, doth spot the beauty of thy budding name. O in what sweets dost thou thy sins enclose? that tongue that tells the story of thy days, making lascivious comments on thy sport, cannot dispraise but in a kind of praise, naming thy name blesses an ill report. O what a mansion have those vices got, which for their habitation chose out thee, where beauty's veil doth cover every blot, and all things turn to fair that eyes can see. Take heed, dear heart, of this large privilege. The hardest knife ill-used doth lose his edge. And so this has been my longest podcast so far. I hope it wasn't too long for you and that you were able to endure it and maybe even enjoy it. I am Brian Cam, Kilo Alpha Mike. You can find me at Brian Cam on Twitter or at BrianCam.com. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to go to anchor.fm slash BKAM and leave me some kind of message, I would love that. If not, I hope you will listen again to my next one, whenever that is, hopefully sometime next week. And I wish you all the best.